0: Case number 14 of the Muman Khan, the Gateless Gate. Nansen cuts the cat in two. Once when the monks of the Western and Eastern halls were arguing about a cat, Nansen holding up the cat said, you monks, if you can say a word of Zen, I will spare the cat, otherwise I will kill it. No one could answer, so Nansen cut the cat in two. That evening, when Joshu returned, Nansen asked him, or Nansen told him, about the incident. Joshu thereupon took off his sandals, put them on his head, and walked off. Nansen said, If you had been there, the cat would have been saved. And that's the end of the case. So here we are coming to the end of this year. Hard to believe. By the way, I hope that some of you are able to come to New Year's this year. It's such a wonderful time here at the center. So, this koan is one of the classic koans. It appears in actually all three of the major collections that we work on in our tradition the Muman Khan, the Hekigan Roku, Blue Cliff Record, and then the roku or the Book of Peace. And that should tell us something that it's an important case, it's not to be uh, discarded. And I think many people have run into this in their readings, it's uh, something that has made its way in somewhat into popular literature and and, and really in the Zen tradition, it's uh, it's found its way into all kinds of things, into art. Uh, Steve, if you could share the screen and um, I want to show people this painting. Which of course list people listening to this later won't be able to see this i don't know if if you can see that but this is a painting by i believe a, a zen monk from japan from the 15th century um, of Nansen holding up the cat with a with a knife in his hand multimedia presentation here, (laughs) come on now. (laughs) I mean, this is getting sophisticated. Hmm. So this this colon, this case can be quite startling, disturbing even, and I'll say more about that later. But I thought it would be useful to explore together, especially during this time when so many of us are gathering together during the holidays. Of course, it can be a joyful time, time to share, time to reflect, time to give. But it also can be one of these challenging times as we gather with family that perhaps see the world differently than we do. And as practitioners, of course, our task is to navigate all of that, right? To to navigate those realities that always come knocking on the door, many of which are about disagreement, about strong opinions, conflict with others, of course, conflict in the news, constantly in politics, and of really, the conflict with inside of ourselves. And so, the powerful ways that koans function as practices, and of course they are practices, is that they do demand engagement, right, They're, they aren't passive or private. We, when we work on koans, we, of course, sit with them, we take them into our zazen. We sit with them, but then we're asked to bring them to life, right? To take our understanding, no matter how how, uh, embryonic that understanding might be, we're asked to take that to doksan. And as many people who come to doksan know, it really boils down to how you'll respond, what you'll say or do. But one of the dangers of working on these koans without doksan is when they're taken out of that relationship, then they lose that power. The wonderful thing though, is that even if we don't practice with koans or doksan, We have plenty of opportunities to respond, right? Whether that's dokes on with our boss, dokes on with our wife, or our husband, or significant other, or our children, right? Around the dinner table, that telemarker that you accidentally answered the call, how are you going to respond? and so the masters in these koans are always turning us back to that very task right to get us to wake up and respond and so master Nansen or nonchuan his chinese name who we meet in this koan was a tong era master he was a student of matsu or basso and <clears throat> He was once walking with a student and the student recited some lines of a a well-known poem at the time and the line he recited went like this, he said, Heaven and I are of the same root, all things are one body. And then he said, isn't that wonderful? Nansen replied by pointing at a flower as they were walking by and said, people these days see this flower as if in a dream. Nonsense point to the student was that while this poem is quite beautiful, the job of each of us is to see, to understand for ourselves the truth of that line, that heaven and I are of one root to see that over and over again, right? Otherwise, it is just a dream. So we can talk about how messed up the world is. We can look out and see all the division, the greed, the hatred, the violence that's out there. But then we always return to this one, right? How at peace are we? I come back to those lines of Confucius who said, When I um, see a good person, I think of emulating them. But when I see a bad person, I examine my own heart. And the wonderful thing is that we have ample opportunities to do that, (laughs) right? As one version of the four vowels says, greed, hatred, and delusion arise endlessly, I vow to put an end to them. And so Nansen comes across these two factions, these two groups of monks that are arguing about a cat. And we could say that this is the first barb, the sharp barb, hidden barb that is in this koan. I've read a lot of commentaries over the years about this case, and almost all of them, to one degree or another, speculate about what were they arguing about. Right. What were, were they arguing about who owns the cat? Right. I've, I've never owned a cat, but I know enough to know that at least from a cat's point of view, no one owns the cat. (laughs) Were they, were they quarreling about whether or not it's appropriate to have a cat in a monastery? They're quite common in monasteries but they do hunt and kill. Uh, Just the other day, there was an article in Scientific American actually that said that cats eat more species than any other other animal on this planet, over 2,000 species they will eat. Were they arguing about whether or not the cat has Buddha nature? Right, of course. The buddha said that all beings are buddha endowed with compassion and wisdom but the question for all of us is to resolve that question not through argument or discussion debate but rather through practice you know back in china in early chan buddhism one that was a raging debate did buddha nature include animals what about other life forms as well what about plants and trees does it extend there what about non-sentient beings so the debate became what is the edge of this buddha nature i think these days though we don't go there quite as much as we instead go into kind of psychologizing Buddha nature. We tend to think of it as a state of mind, like a state of contentment or happiness, peace, perhaps a state where there aren't so many thoughts that are arising in the mind. And so we have a picture of what Buddha nature might be. And then with that picture, we start to ask, how come I don't feel that state of mind? I don't feel Buddha nature. But Buddha nature is not subject to feeling. And this is an important point for all of us in our Zazen to notice that feelings constantly come and go. Right? It's not dependent on whether we realize or feel or see anything, really. It's simply a fact when we talk about Buddha nature. Right Again, feelings and thoughts are pretty unreliable. So if that is our measure of our life, then we are missing it. So the truth is we don't know what these monks were arguing about we just know they were arguing about a cat and so we could speculate but that actually is a part of the problem not a part of the solution and this is why buddha refused to answer philosophical questions remember his criteria for answering questions, he said, does it lead to the end of suffering? Will my answer, does your question lead towards the end of suffering? It's so easy to get sidetracked, to get lost in details, facts, which is exactly what happens when we're arguing. You know, I remember as a kid, once going to a friend's house and the parents his parents were were um, disagreeing about something Uh, i don't know about what but i just what struck me was how they handled it that they stopped they listened to each other they sort of repeated back what the other had said it was it was quite different than the family that I grew up with, where it was about winning the argument. And so even now, there are <clears throat> times when I'm trying to get my point across to someone, and how easy it is to get lost in facts, and or what I perceive as the facts, right? So lost in being right, that I totally forget about the fact that there's a person sitting across from me. In those times, during those times, what is also very difficult to notice is actually how much suffering is happening. And so when we find ourselves arguing, we have to step back and ask, what is it that I'm doing here? Right? Oftentimes what we'll find is a stubbornness, defensiveness, the idea that the other person should change, all of which is suffering. Yuan Wu, who's the compiler of the Blue Cliff Record, and this case is in there as well, at least the first part, and he said, commenting on this case, he said, if you reach an impasse, change. If you reach an impasse, change. Having changed, then you get through. Through what? That's the question. Through what? Well, through this otherwise seemingly solid moment, right, where things feel so bound up, so, so, insurmountable, so stuck. It's like a giant traffic jam. I was rereading an article. uh, I was talking about traffic and it referenced about 10 years ago, there was a traffic jam in China. I don't know if you remember hearing about this traffic jam. It was the largest traffic jam ever. It lasted for 12 days. It went on for a hundred kilometers. And people were stuck in that traffic jam between five and six days in their cars. That's how many cars they're putting on the road in China. This was in Beijing. And so the question is like, what needs to happen here to get the traffic moving? Something needs to be different. The Buddha said, I don't quarrel with the world. The world quarrels with me. I don't quarrel with the world. The world quarrels with me. I think the first part is understandable, right? I don't quarrel with the world. But what does he mean when he says, the world quarrels with me? Well, one of the honorific titles of the Buddha that we were talking about recently in our discussion group was, Tathagata, and one of the meanings of Tathagata, this Sanskrit word, I believe, might be Pali, means someone who sees reality as it is. Right, and so of course we think of how much denial there is in this world, how people argue with reality, getting lost in how things should be. I would like them to be, rather than about how they are. So the question is, like, how, what will we do not to get lost in how things should be? Again, the Buddha said, those who realize the truth of birth and death immediately settle their disputes. It's one of my favorite quotes from the Buddha those who realize the truth of birth and death immediately settle their disputes. And this is a practice to turn back to the fact that we're all subject to old age, sickness, and death. Essentially using that fact to return to what is most important, which we do again and again in Zazen. That's our task. I think about how During an emergency, how when there's an emergency, when it's a matter of life and death, suddenly everything else stops. All the quarreling is put aside. And then Buddha nature shines through. (laughs) You know, it's funny how that happens. It shows us a potential, doesn't it? That it's not far away. And so nonsense attempts to just do just this, right? If someone can say a word of Zen, I'll spare the cat. Which means if someone can cut to the essence, to cut through to what's important, if someone can say a word, otherwise I'll kill it. And so no one responds. From fear, from concern, maybe afraid of saying the right thing or the wrong thing. From disbelief, perhaps, about what's happening, right? How could this master hold up this cat and threaten it with a knife? Part of the reason that this koan came to mind for me this week was because I've been following this news story, which I'm sure some of you at least are aware of where the presidents of three major universities were called in front of Congress to, to testify about the uptick in antisemitism on college campuses, now with the Israeli-Palestinian war raging, calling them to answer questions about whether or not these calls on campuses for the genocide of Jews was, constituted harassment on campuses and all three of the presidents gave what can only be characterized as kind of bureaucratic responses right saying it depended on the context saying how it depended on whether or not it rose to the level of conduct and while of course that might be appropriate when talking about this you know meeting to hash out the details of ...you know, policies about right speech on campus, and all those answers failed to meet the moment. Right? It was a moment to declare unequivocally that anti-Semitism was not okay. It wasn't a time for policy discussion. Now, just to say... That the Republicans who convened that convened that inquiry, they weren't altruistic in their motives. It wasn't simply about anti-Semitism. right? They had a political axe to grind about politics on campuses. And perhaps the university presidents knew that, and we're trying to sidestep that trap. Of being drawn into politics, but in doing so, they missed an opportunity to use what we call in Zen live words or live action. The the master Yun Men was asked, What are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And Yun Men responded, An appropriate response. Of course, the term appropriate is also a loaded word. In fact, appropriateness might be the very thing that draws us further away from responding the way that is called for. Right? I think of how many arguments hinge on some version of someone's idea of what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. But the spirit of humans answer is that we should always aspire to respond in the moment to respond as the moment calls for which takes trust and it takes courage to do that to not go down that same old road of you know rehearsed or habitual responses responding the way we think someone ought to respond it takes courage right to also to forgive ourselves when we do do that, or to forgive others when they do do that. Of course, with the college presidents, everyone's calling for their resign, you know, that they should resign. And is that actually going to help the situation? Again, Yuan Wu says about this case, he says, this matter is clearly known It is so distinctly clear is not to be found in emotions and opinions. If you go searching in emotions and opinions, then you turn against nonsense. So when we get stuck there, you know, in emotions and opinions, we can't respond. So one of the strong opinions and emotions that get stirred up is when we hear this case right? Like, how could a master like this, like Nansen, who's taken vows as a monk, who's taken the precepts, how could they respond this way? How could they kill a cat? What kind of spiritual teachings is this? These are all good questions. But when we get stuck there, and this is what tends to happen, is we kind of stay, kind of stall there, We get paralyzed, right? We can get stuck in things like, I can't believe he would do that. How many times have we had such a refrain in our own minds about somebody or something we've heard? I can't believe that happened. Yuan Wu continues, he says, the fact is at the time, Nansen did not kill. The story does not lie in killing or not killing. Just see it right on the edge of the knife. Right on the edge of the knife. Practicing has been referred to as walking the razor's edge. Either following this way or following that way. Again, I've been thinking about how paralyzed many of the college campuses have become around this Israeli war, you know, because you're either pro-Jewish, pro israeli or pro-palestinian but in my mind part of the tragedy is that is it, that itself you know how one-sided we can become <clears throat> i've got to be on this side or that side which leads to hatred violence demonizing i was speaking with a student from zendo here who was born in israel and moved here as a young person but how they feel for the plight of the palestinians and what they were saying how they feel conflicted about those feelings because they have this feeling inside that they should be pro-israeli pro-jewish and and they felt like they were being not so loyal by feeling the plight to the palestinians the truth is we can we can look at that from the outside and say well it's Kind of elementary but thinking to times where we ourselves have had such complex mixed feelings about issues you know that are diff- difficult to tolerate but this is being on the edge of the knife which can feel very unstable we'd much prefer to fall to one side or another this is why people do this i want to say that because it we can bring a level of understanding to when people choose sides as unskillful as it may be it's a way to relieve that feeling of being on the edge of the knife but to be in that uncertain place where things aren't so clear is our practice this is why koan practice is so compelling but also so maddening for anybody that engages in it, because it produces a sensation in us, as Master Mumon says, of feeling like we have a hot iron ball in our throat that we can either cough up nor swallow. This is the road we go down when we choose koan practice, right? Because there's an often seeming paradox in each koan. There's These places where we get hung up, which is the case with our world situation. The world situation as we encounter it is a koan. So we try to cough it up or spit it out to get rid of that uncomfortableness that we feel. Some people ignore it. I'm not going to check the news. Some people deal with it by saying things like, I don't care which I hear about koans as well but in Zen when we say we don't care we're not living up to our vows of course no one can force us to care but a bodhisattva cares whether they know how to express that care or not And so deep caring is an important ingredient in koan practice as well, which is difficult for those of you who are working on your first koan. It's difficult to sustain that year after year without saying, what the hell, I can't care anymore. But if we really want to see into our nature to embody the teachings, it starts with that and continues with that. And caring means that we have to do something. So often when we're feeling stuck with a koan or something else, if we just throw up our hands, we miss it. Like the monks in this case, right? Paralyzed, not knowing how to respond. But this reinforces the traffic jam when nobody moves. Someone has to move. People often get to this place in Doksang. In the beginning, there can be lots of questions. Okay, I'm going to ask about meditation technique. I'm going to ask about the forms that I encounter in the Zendo. A lot of questions about Jukai or about about this aspect of Buddhism or that aspect of Buddhism, which are all important questions to To, to engage with, to answer, to, to ask. But at some point, those questions begin to uh, lessen. We have less questions to bring up. And so then the question is, really, what do we bring to doksan? This is true with the first koan, too. We, how do I practice with this koan? We might get some encouragement. But then, then what? some people stop coming at that point they they stop engaging with doksan because they just don't know what to say but then of course then they're stuck in an impasse right that's the impasse itself that has to be worked with so we're told that later that night joshu returned to the monastery he must have been out somewhere who knows But he was training under Nansen at the time. He was a lifelong student of Nansen. He returned to the monastery, and Nansen told him what happened with the cat. And at that, Joshu took off his sandals, put them on his head, and walked out. So some people have speculated that this was an ancient ritual for mourning, that was done at funerals or memorial services that sandals were put on the head some people speculate that it means things are topsy-turvy turned upside down you know all of these things could be true but this koan and this joshu's response has nothing to do with any kind of convention of the time it has nothing to do with turning over convention in a sense Because when we get stuck in conventions, either societal or, more importantly, the conventions we create in our own minds, we we are prevented, really, from seeing what's here, from being free. And turning to Dogen, Master Dogen, the Soto Zen Master, he commented on this case. He said, in a dialogue with his student, named Ajo, he said, if I had been nonsense, I would have said, if you cannot speak, I will kill it. Even if you can speak, I will kill it. Who would fight over a cat, he said, and who can save the cat? And then on behalf of the students, he says, I would have said, we are not able to speak. Master, go ahead and kill the cat. Or perhaps I would have said for them, Master, you only know about cutting the cat in two. Yet what about how will you cut the cat in one? How will you cut the cat in one? Ajo asked, well, how do you cut the cat in one? Dogen said, the cat itself. This is our practice, to cut the cat in one, to cut the world in one, to see that the world can never be cut, never divided from the beginning. Dogen also added, he said, "If." I had been nonsense when the students could not answer, I would have released the cat, saying that the students had already spoken. And then he said, an ancient master said, when the great function manifests itself, no fixed rules exist. Nogan here is of course presenting the world where we're not bound by this or that. We're not bound by rules. How are we going to respond? Then the masters are always imploring us to leap free from the many and one. He says, when the great function manifests itself has no fixed form. This doesn't mean that there are no rules. Obviously, it's against the precepts to kill a cat as it is to kill anything. It's wrong. But our job is to respond, not from rules, but from the free functioning of that precept, not to kill. So how would you do that if you had been there? This isn't something that can really be decided, but has, you know, ahead of time, it has to be encountered. Each situation we find ourselves has to be encountered as it is. Because if we respond out of thinking about it and pre planning, then of course we're rule bound. So, what will we do? How will we manifest this great function?